The following message is from Ridgewood Church in Greer, South Carolina. For more information, visit RidgewoodGreer.com. Now, in early 1956, there were five young men. You're probably familiar with this story. I would imagine many of you are. Ed McCulley, Roger Yowderain, Nate Sate, Pete Fleming, and Jim Elliott. I have a picture on the screen of uh, the the man named Jim Elliott. These five men were killed by Iwaka Indians in an attempt to share the gospel in early 1956. Jim Elliott was 29 years old. He had dedicated his life, his very short three decades, to missions and especially to seeing these Ecuadorian Indians come to faith in Christ. He started something what he called Operation Iwaka. Now think about that, 29 years old, his life was taken from him while sharing the gospel. What a waste, what a waste of a life, right? A young man, so full of potential, he had so much out in front of him, what a tragedy, what a waste that his life would be spent so needlessly, right? I mean, surely if his God cared for him, surely his God would have done something about this young life that wasn't spared. Surely, if God was about the the gospel advancing, surely he wouldn't have let these five men and their young lives be snuffed out in the way that he did. This is a tragedy. Or is it? Maybe you've heard of Jim's wife, Elizabeth. Elizabeth Elliot, who just a few years after her husband was killed, moved with her daughter to Ecuador to minister and live among these Indians where they shared the gospel fruitfully. Nate Saint, one of the martyrs, his family still lives and ministers among these Indians, many of whom who profess faith in Jesus. And not only that, Elizabeth Elliot became an absolute boss, a prolific and widely celebrated author and speaker, one of my wife's favorites. She is absolutely stellar. And in stories like these, maybe you're familiar with the, the Jim Elliot story, Stories like these and innumerable others, we see God's incredible design for the advance of his gospel through his church. Now, we've said that the book of Acts is in a lot of ways about advance. It starts with this small band of followers who have followed Jesus. Jesus has been crucified, buried, and and resurrected. And Jesus tells this small band of followers that you guys are going to advance. Or more specifically, the kingdom and the message of the kingdom is going to advance from Jerusalem to the surrounding regions of Judea and Samaria, ultimately to the ends of the earth. And the book of Acts, we've said, is about this advance. We've said that the book of Acts can be summarized like this. God, by his spirit, creating a people to make Jesus known. And Jesus himself said that that's what's going to take place. And the book is organized in these three different sections where we see kind of the spirit's work amongst the church in Jerusalem, and then their advance to Judea and Samaria in part two, and then to the ends of the earth, in part three. Two weeks ago, we first met the character named Stephen. We saw that the book had been progressing to this point where the church had been met with obstacle after obstacle after obstacle, both internally and externally. These obstacles and this opposition had been steadily escalating. But we saw that no matter matter how the enemy opposed the advance of the church, God broke through the opposition that the enemy brought forward. Stephen's sermon, he breaks the, the very bad news to his hearers when he tells them that you are the bad guys. This was two Sundays ago. We considered Stephen's uh, sermon. He just shucks corn and, and lays the boom. We're told that his hearers rage and put Stephen to death. And so the question is, 
Will Stephen's death mark the end of the advance? Will Stephen's death, the first Christian martyr, I mean, things have escalated to a point that they have not yet been so far for the church. Is this going to mark the end of the early Christian movement? Is this going to successfully snuff out the message of Messiah Jesus? Or is God sovereign even even over the opposition? Let's look again at Acts chapter 6, verse 8. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenaeans, and of the Alexandrians, and those of uh, Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Have you ever been in the presence of somebody who was really excellent at something that you wanted to be excellent in? Like, so maybe, maybe you consider yourself a, uh, I don't know, a, a really gifted athlete, but then you're in the presence of a really gifted athlete, and you just kind of feel condemned by their presence. Or like, I'm looking at Will right now, and I kind of feel condemned by the quality of that mustache. I gotta, gotta say, that's next level. <laughs> You're in the presence of someone who's, who's really good at something. You just kind of feel condemned by their presence. What it says here is that they couldn't withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which Stephen was speaking. It was like he had a gravitas and an authority that they just couldn't stomach. They couldn't handle the intensity of his person and the power that was just thick, this cloud of goodness and mercy that hung on Stephen. Verse 11, then they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and they seized him and they brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place in the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. So we saw a few weeks ago, Stephen was a deacon. We're told he's a man of good repute, full of spirit and wisdom. This week he's full of grace and power. He's doing great wonders and signs among the people. The opposition rises against Stephen. We've seen this again and again, and it's escalated, and it has now reached a point of no return in the narrative of Acts. Stephen is specifically targeted and conspired against. We're told that there's, there's, there's no legitimate complaints that anyone can come up with about Stephen, so they manufacture these rumors. They, they secretly instigate and stir things up to condemn Stephen. And it's worth noting, as we've mentioned before several times in Acts, how freakishly familiar this count sounds to us. Like, are, are there any other characters in Scripture that we can think about who had a kind of authority that people couldn't stomach because it was just so dense? A kind of grace and a kind of power that accompanied his person that people just couldn't handle it. Someone who, who you, couldn't, you couldn't cast any, uh, any accusations against because they wouldn't stick, and so folks secretly conspired to have him put to death. The story of Stephen up to this point sounds freakishly like the story of Jesus. Very similar to Jesus, Luke's account of, of Jesus' trial and ultimately his crucifixion. Seems like Luke is intending to kind of recall in our mind the story of Jesus here in this passage. And it reminds us of something that we've already covered here before. How the church is the living out of the story of Jesus. Jesus is the cornerstone. He's the very foundation whose work is, is unique and perfect and unrepeatable. But we're reminded in passages like this that to live the Christian life, as we've said before, 
is to live the life story of Jesus. To live the Christian life is to live the life story of Jesus. It's to, to be people who in every way take our cues from Christ. People who devote ourselves to the four gospels which tell the story of Christ, to devote ourselves to Jesus and his ways and his practices and adopt his ways and his life as our very own. And then notice in, in verse 15 how he's described. It says, as Stephen is being accused, these false accusations are being brought against him. It describes him in verse 15 as having the faith, uh, face rather like that of an angel. The face of an angel. One commentator said that this is a visage transfigured. It's a picture of a martyr who's inspired by the heavenly vision, filled with the spirit and empowered for fearless testimony before his accusers. It's possible that Luke is intending to recall passages like the story of Moses after he comes down from Sinai after receiving the law, we're told that Moses' face glowed. Or Jesus, we're told that in his transfiguration in Luke chapter 9, when he goes onto the mount and the veil is kind of dropped for a moment and Jesus appears in all his glory, we're told that Jesus' face changed and that he was radiant. And we're told here that Stephen, facing certain death, was radiant. This face is the face of one of whom the world was not worthy. The accusations are brought to Stephen, and Stephen's response is to preach, is to tell the story of Israel's history as stiff-necked people. Uh, again, we, we looked at this two Sundays ago. We're not going to look at the, the entirety of his sermon today. We're going to skip to kind of the concluding portion where he lands the, lands the plane in verse 51. Uh, you, can, you can find on our podcast two Sundays ago where we kind of explored this more in depth. But Stephen concludes his sermon this way in verse 51. He says, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. The accusation against Stephen is that he speaks willy-nilly about the law and that he, 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 he blasphemes God and the temple and Moses. And Stephen, showing them their history, says, ironically, you're the ones who are living in continuity with your forefathers because they always, always rejected the messengers of God. They always resisted the Holy Spirit. And in your resistance to Jesus, you are fulfilling exactly what they did to Joseph, to Moses, to David, to Solomon, and the like. And so how do the crowds respond? Verse 54. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But the crowd cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Now something Luke loves to do is to drop names earlier on in the narrative that then become really important as the story progresses. Keep an eye on this Saul figure. They cast Stephen out of the city. They stone him. Ironically, they cast him out of the city because the city is, too, in their minds, too holy a place to kill a man. So they cast him out of the city, and they kill him by pummeling him with rocks. Verse 59. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, 
Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. So they reject Stephen's message. You stiff-necked people, you always resist the Holy Spirit. It says that they grind their teeth at Stephen. All right, so this is, this is kind of a, a great uh, you know, word picture uh, for us. I mean, you think about kind of grinding your teeth, and it's kind of a, a gnarly thing, and they're enraged against Stephen. But where else in Scripture are we told that people grind their teeth? When Jesus teaches on hell, the forces of hell are raging against Stephen. They're enraged by the things that Stephen is saying. Then in verse 55, it says that he has a vision of Jesus standing, standing at God's right hand. Christ, usually depicted as one sitting at God's right hand, here standing, standing as if to welcome Stephen to himself. That these blasphemous words that Stephen announces, I see the Son of Man standing at God's right hand. Again, words that Jesus himself said as he was being tried. As these blasphemous in their minds, words are enraged, the forces of hell rage against the Lord and his anointed. They rush Stephen, they throw him out of the city, and they kill him by throwing rocks at him. And again, we see similarities with Jesus' own death. In verse 59, he says, Lord, receive my spirit. Upon Jesus' death, he says, Lord, into your hands I commit my spirit. In verse 60, he cries out with a loud voice, saying, don't hold this sin against them. Reminds us of Jesus' words, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Then once again, we're shown here that the believer's life is the life of Christ. And more than that, we're shown that the believer's call is to suffer with and like Jesus. The believer's call is to suffer with and like Jesus. In Luke chapter 21, as Jesus' ministry with his disciples is kind of coming to a conclusion, he tells his disciples this. This will be on the screen. This is Luke 21, verse 12. Jesus says, but before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. Big time foreshadowing, by the way. Kings and governors make an appearance in the book of Acts. Jesus says, this will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it therefore in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you, they will be put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. Jesus promised to his disciples exactly this, exactly what Stephen experiences, that he would be opposed and even put to death by people who reject Christ and reject Stephen's affiliation with Christ. And it reminds us that when Jesus calls a disciple, he bids them come and die. For every Christian, the call in every Christian's life is to say, my life now belongs to you, Jesus, and your cross now belongs to me, Jesus, period. Whatever that entails for me, whatever that involves for me, I'm willing to follow you, to take up my cross, and even die for your namesake, Jesus. 
And if you're here and you're not a Christian, don't, don't misunderstand Christian teaching on this. We're not saying that by, by obedience, even to the point of death, that we're somehow earning Jesus' approval or earning Jesus' favor, as if Stephen sort of won Jesus' affection in this moment. No, what the scriptures tell us is that, we, that when we meet the, the love of God in Christ, when we receive the blessing of salvation in Jesus, it has a way of just loosening our grip on our lives so that we would devote ourselves to him even to the end of our days, that we would let go of everything in favor of Christ. You know, I think about Paul's words in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. I've mentioned it a couple of times tonight. I've just been kind of, kind of snagged on those scriptures of late. We've been blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And then in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 18, he prays that the Ephesians would have the strength to withstand what is the height and the depth and the breadth and the width and every other spatial dimension that you can fathom, that we would have the ability to withstand the intensity of God's blessing for us in Christ. Paul prays that you would have the strength, the, the backbone to bear up under the blessings that God has dispensed on you in Jesus. If we take hold of that, I mean, how, how can that enable us to loosen our grip on the lesser things in life in order, in order to give ourselves fully to Jesus? So what comes next in this story? Does the story of Stephen's death mark the end of the kingdom's advance? Does this successfully snuff out the message of Messiah Jesus? Look at verse 1 of chapter 8. And Saul approved of Stephen's execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now again, Saul is mentioned, and it's sort of a, an intense picture we're given of Saul. We're told that he's ravaging the church. This word ravaging is used to describe what wild animals do in other Greek settings where this word is used. We're told that devout men buried Stephen. They, they, they lamented greatly over Stephen's death. But here, really, really slyly is this little statement here in verse 1. As the great persecution arose against the church in Jerusalem, they were all scattered. And where were they scattered to? Judea and Samaria, just as Jesus said they would be. And this twist that's sort of hinted at here is that their opposition is the very means that God uses to advance his gospel. All scattered throughout the region. They're scattered like seeds being scattered to take root and to flourish. And in verse 4 of chapter 8, it says that those scattered went about preaching the word. And so the twist is that far from snuffing out the advance of the gospel, far from snuffing out the advance of the kingdom, this opposition and persecution becomes the very means by which the kingdom advances. Just like Jesus' death, the forces of hell only accomplish God's purposes. John Piper says that God makes even persecution serve mission. And so Jesus' words are fulfilled. Into Judea and Samaria the kingdom goes. 
We think Stephen's death, and, and they thought Stephen's death would mark the end of this, this message of Christ, the resurrected Messiah. No, 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 no. According to the book of Acts, it's only getting started. The gospel advances beyond the borders of the city of Jerusalem into Judea and Samaria. Uh, next week, we're going to pivot into part two of our teaching series, the book of Acts. We're going to pivot into the next phase of the book from focusing on the events in Jerusalem to focusing on the events that take place in Judea and Samaria. Uh, excited about being able to study this book. And we, we want to take seriously what Acts has to say to us, particularly as we, we look at transitioning our life into the Ridgewood facilities and, and pray that God would teach us what it, what it looks like to be the church and to take our cues from books like Acts. Now, Luke once again hints at things that are to come in verses 1 and 3 when he mentions Saul, approving of Stephen's execution. But here in this passage, the, the, the money portion for us is that we see God's design. That the enemy's opposition to the gospel's advance is the very means God uses to advance the gospel. This was true of Jim Elliot, whose death sparked the ministry of the Saint family, Nate Saint and his family, whose death sparked the ministry of Elizabeth Elliot and the millions of lives that she's touched. This is true of Christians who were imprisoned all over the world, who were imprisoned and then report opportunities to share the gospel in prison. This is true of Stephen, the very first Christian martyr, whose death resulted in the gospel being flung into the surrounding regions, just as Jesus promised. And this is true of the Lord Jesus himself. The enemy's attempts to snuff him out were the very means of his victory. The enemy said, we'll put Jesus to death. We'll finally, we'll put an end to the, the problems that Jesus is causing, only for his death to become the death of death. The ruining of the forces of evil, the enemy subverted once again by God's brilliance and by God's power. And so what are we to make of this passage? <clears throat> how was Ridgewood Church to walk away from reading this scripture today? Let's say in this passage we have both a call and a promise. A call and a promise. And the call is this, we've already alluded to it. The call for every believer is to suffer with and like Jesus. To suffer with and like Jesus. How does this passage reframe the suffering and the hardship that we experience? Do you see how the Lord actually might have purposes well beyond what we can think or imagine in our suffering and in the hardships that we face? Is it possible that God could be up to something that far exceeds anything that we envision through hardship and through suffering. We see it again and again in Scripture. The God, what the enemy intends for evil, God intends for good. And I don't know how it works. I can't explain to you how those dynamics work. But what the Scriptures tell us is that God is the author of all things and that he is bringing all things to a glorious, perfect, appointed end. And he subverts the power of the enemy by using it for good. So how does this passage reframe that for you? And how does this passage help you to, to see the call to suffer with and like Jesus as a glorious, glorious call? Paul in Philippians chapter 1 writes this. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. 
For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. The call in our lives, friends, is to put on the life of Christ. And this, mean, this means for us that the kingdom's advance comes through our suffering, our cross-bearing, and our self-sacrifice. Suffering, hardship, opposition, and even opposition unto death. But God is sovereign even over our suffering and any opposition we experience. And so we can embrace this call with full confidence in God's good plan for us. The call is to suffer with and like Jesus. But there's a promise here as well. The promise is that if we suffer with and like Christ, we will one day be raised with him like Christ. Look again at verse 60. How is Stephen's death described? What does it say? Does it say Stephen breathed his last? Does it say Stephen, his synapses quit firing and he, and he stopped breathing and his heart stopped? What does it say? It says Stephen fell asleep. Now why does Luke say that? Why does he say that Stephen fell asleep? Is he, is, he, is he nervous about the harsh realities of death and so he uses this euphemism? Is he wanting to avoid really strong language and so he says fell asleep for the children in the room? Or is it because we know what sleeping people do? Sleeping people wake back up. Jesus' words in Luke 21, he says, you may die. Listen to this. You may die, but you won't perish. You may die, but you won't perish. And if we embrace the life of Christ, we also receive the resurrection of Christ. Just as Christ was raised, brothers and sisters, one day we too will be raised with and like Jesus. On the other side of death, bulletproof, deathproof, I don't know how it works, but we're going to be raised with and like Jesus. Paul says this in Romans 8, verse 14. Get this tattooed on your, on your forehead and look at it daily. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And so we, we read the story of Stephen, and we see his life cut tragically short. We hear the story of Jim Elliot, and we see his life cut tragically short. But we know that these men who suffered and died with and like Christ are going to be resurrected just as Christ was. And so we can conclude with Jim Elliot's famous words. He's no fool who, who gives up what he can't hold on to forever. I can't remember his words exactly, but it's something like that. We can give our lives away knowing that we have been given life with a capital L in Christ. So we're issued a call. 
to suffer, to, to su- suffer and die with and like Jesus, but we're issued a promise to be raised with and like him for good. This evening, if you're not a Christian, this is the Christian hope. This is, this is what we're about. We're people who are about the crucified and risen Jesus because we, we lock our hope on his resurrection, believing that one day, one day, by, by his mercy and by his grace, we will be raised like him. If you'd like to talk more about this, um, at the end of worship, I'm going to be posted up by that door back there. Aaron will be uh, around back there as well in the, in the green shirt and the name tag. And uh, either of us would love to talk with you more about what it means to, to follow Jesus and what it means to believe in the resurrection. In the next few moments, uh, the band is going to come back up after I play. And I'm just going to encourage you to read your questions for reflection on the bottom of your bulletin. Uh, each week we provide those, and our hope is, is that it helps you to, to ha- have some things to kind of take with you and chew on as you leave this evening. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we come to you um, humbled by the example of our brother Stephen, by the first Christian martyr who has inspired millions and millions of Christians all over the world to faithfulness. And and we pray for this kind of faithfulness and this kind of willingness to embrace the call that you place on our life. We pray that you would give us um, faithfulness and and boldness to embrace the crosses that you give us. Be that opposition from our families for faithfulness to Jesus. Be that opposition at work for faithfulness to Jesus. Be that bodies that are breaking down. Whatever it may be, Jesus, we pray that we would embrace the suffering and the hardship that you have for us and we would embrace it as something that you have for us and that we would embrace it in in faith knowing that you intend to, to reap good from that harvest. And we pray that we would steward these seasons of suffering and hardship that you give to us for your namesake, trusting that you you want to do something with us and in us during those seasons. But we pray most of all that we would be a people who who are buoyed by the promise of resurrection that we have by your scripture. And not only by your scripture, but by the very life of Jesus who is alive now and who is reigning now, we, we look to him and we, we see that one day we will be made like him. And we pray, God, that you would, that you would give us faith and confidence and, and perseverance. I pray this evening for any folks who are in our midst who have not yet believed or who are wrestling with what it means to believe in Jesus or who are, maybe they're in the very early stages of their discipleship. I pray, I pray Jesus, that, they, that, that you would... Uh, Reveal to them what it means to be a people who, who offer their lives to you and who write a, a kind of blank check of their life for you and who do, do so in hope of being resurrected like you. Lord Jesus, may this church be a church that loves you above and beyond all things. And we pray that we would indeed be about making you known. We pray all of this in your name.